you have declared a jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? The U.S. government has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous and criminal through its support of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And we believe the U.S. is directly responsible for those killed in Palestine, Lebanon and Iraq. Due to its subordination to the Jews, the arrogance of the United States regime has reached the point that they occupied Arabia, the holiest place of the Muslims, who are more than a billion people in the world today. For this and other acts of aggression and injustice, we have declared jihad against the U.S. Is the jihad directed against the U.S. government uh, or United States troops in Arabia? What about... U.S. civilians in Arabia or the people of the United States. We have focused our declaration of jihad on striking at the U.S. soldiers inside Arabia, the country of the two holy places, Mecca and Medina. In our religion, it is not permissible for any non-Muslim to stay in Arabia. Therefore, even though American civilians are not targeted in our plan, they must leave. We do not guarantee their safety. We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour and I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today we're going to be talking about the 1998 East Africa Embassy bombings and often forgotten terrorist attack and is the first declaration of war against the United States by Al-Qaeda and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad led by Dr. Ayman Zawahiri. And in order to give it the best context as I possibly can, I'm going to be giving the motivations of these attacks first to give it proper context. Now, if we go according to the respected journalist Lawrence Wright, the Nairobi bombings, or the operation of the Nairobi bombings itself, was based on being named after the Holy Kaaba in Mecca. The Dar es Salaam bombing was called Operation Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. But neither had an obvious connection to the embassies in Africa. Bin Laden initially said that the sites had been targeted because of the U.S. invasion of Somalia, in which he described the Americans' plan to partition Sudan, which he said was hatched in the embassy in Nairobi, 
in which that was the country, bin Laden was given residency and spent over $80 million on reconstruction in the public and business sector. He also told his followers that the genocide in Rwanda had also been planned inside the two embassies. And Lawrence Wright, who wrote The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, states in the book that he concluded that bin Laden's actual goal was to lure the United States into Afghanistan, into a revisit of a long-standing war in which billions and billions of dollars would deplete the American economy and destroy the country from within. Which is why Afghanistan was given the nickname the Graveyard of Empires. Now that was Bin Laden's reasoning. What about Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri's reasoning? Well, after being expelled from the Sudan in 1996, both Bin Laden and Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri traveled back to Afghanistan, where they were welcomed by the Taliban. Now, relatively little is known about Zawahiri or the Egyptian Islamic Jihad's activities during this time. But according to the Center of International Security and Cooperation by Stanford, the Freeman Spogey Institute, In 1998, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad faced two major setbacks, which significantly undermined its capacity. First was the landmark case, colloquially known as the Returnees from Albania, in which the Albanian government agreed to extradite to Egypt 12 exiled members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, formerly known as Al-Jihad, which was behind the assassination of its president, Anwar Sadat, in 1980, along with another Egyptian radical sect led by Ahmed Rafai Taha and Omar Abdul Rahman called the Gamma Islamiyah. Among those extradited was Ayman al-Zawahari's brother, Muhammad al-Zawahari, who was believed to have been one of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad's top military commanders. And around this same time, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad's most valuable member, the membership director, Ahmed Salma Marbuk, was captured in Azerbaijan by the CIA and eventually extradited to Egypt, where Egypt is where you're sent to be tortured and killed. Remember, the United States doesn't do it on its own land the United States, because we have laws regulating them. Now, Marbuk's capture was devastating for the group because the Egyptian Islamic Jihad was organized in a cell structure designed to prevent one member from being able to identify the rest of the membership if captured. So if you had a member that was involved with recruiting, he wouldn't know what was going on with the operational cell or the analytical cell or the, uh, the religious cell. What led what was so invaluable about his capture was that Marabuk had a computer containing the name and addresses 
of all the Egyptian Islam Jihad members because, remember, he was the membership director of the group. So, with Marabuk's capture, the Egyptian government under Hosni Mubarak, who took over for the assassinated Sadat as the country's president, was able to round up a large portion of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad members remaining in Egypt, including two leaders of the group, Ahmed Ibrahim al-Nagar and Ahmed Ismail Osman. Because of this and other setbacks like the returnees from Albania case, al-Zawahiri chose to merge the group Egyptian Islamic Jihad into al-Qaeda in 1998. Now, there is some debate, right, as to whether the merger was completed in 98, or um, if the process was more gradual over time, because complete unification was not finalized until 2001. And that's coming from notable experts and laureates like um, Anne Stemmerson, Thomas Hedgehammer, and of course, Lawrence Wright, and Mustafa Hamid, these are all the leading experts on Al-Qaeda and Egyptian Islamic Jihad. And Muhtasir al-Zayat, who was responsible uh, for writing the, um, the book relating to Dr. Ayman al-Zawahari, because he was his lawyer. And he was with Zawahiri in the Torah prison in Egypt. And thus, this is basically the two motivations between Al-Qaeda and Egyptian Islamic Jihad for the attack on the embassies. In February of 98, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and Al-Qaeda basically released a fatwa. And it was released on February 23rd, 1998, where it was read by bin Laden, who also gave a previous fatwa in 96, which you heard at the beginning, which outlined the grievances that were attributed to the United States and the continued repression of the Muslim world. And bin Laden would say, quote, first, for over 70 years, the United States has been occupying the lands of Islam in the holiest of places, the Arabian Peninsula, plundering its riches, dictating to its rulers, humiliating its people, terrorizing its neighbors, and turning its bases in the peninsula into a spearhead through which to fight the neighboring Muslim people. If some people have in the past argued about the fact of the occupation, all the people of the peninsula have now acknowledged it. The best proof of this is the Americans continuing aggression against the Iraqi people using the peninsula as a staging post, even though all its rulers are against the territories being used to that end, but they are helpless. Second, despite the great devastation inflicted on the Iraqi people by the Crusader Zionist Alliance, and despite the huge number of those killed 
which has exceeded 1 million. Despite all this, the Americans are once again trying to repeat this horrific massacre as though they are not content with the protracted blockade imposed after the ferocious war or the fragmentation and devastation. So here they come to annihilate what is left of this people and to humiliate their Muslim neighbors. Third, if the Americans' aims behind these wars are religious and economic, the aim is also to serve the Jews' petty state and divert attention from its occupation of Jerusalem and the murder of Muslims there. The best proof of this is their eagerness to destroy Iraq, the strongest neighboring Arab state, and their endeavor to fragment all the states of the region, such as Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Sudan, into paper statelets, and through their disunion and weakness to guarantee Israel's survival and the continuation of the brutal crusade occupation of the peninsula, end quote. Now, if we were to basically give any validation for any of what bin Laden is saying here, it is through U.S. and Israeli foreign policy. Because with this, it creates the fanaticism we see in the Muslim world. There is some truth behind this statement. And if you look at policy guidelines such as the Wolfowitz Doctrine, the Project for New American Century, or the infamous Oded Yunan Plan, you can see there is a sort of disunion or fragmentation of the Arab world. How do we see that? Take a look at the current times. What did we see? The U.S. invitation into and their military intervention in Afghanistan, as a response to 9-11, Iraq, twice, and later, Syria, Libya, and the drone strikes in Pakistan, as well as Saudi Arabia's intervention in the Yemen conflict. The countries that had anything to do with terrorism, such as Bahrain, Qatar, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, well, the United States certainly are not going to military invade on their preconceived allies. Why? Because these are the countries that are basically supplying and financially abetting these terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and at one point Egyptian Islam Jihad and groups like Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines and uh Jemislamia in Indonesia and Boko Haram in North Africa. And like I said before, according to some jihadist experts, some I just named, Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri was forced into bin Laden's hands because he needed funds and other assistance to keep the organization, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, afloat. And in this respect, the decline of the militant Islamic movement in Egypt, led by Hosni Mubarak, who is the main enemy to both the Gamma Islamia and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, 
In this respect, the decline of the military or the militant Islamic movement in Egypt, we ironically boosted the strength of the broader international movement around bin Laden, which is al-Qaeda. And bin Laden was most likely aware of this. He had to have been. Because in 1996, when he returned to Afghanistan, recruitment was up 50%. According to Ann Sterrinson's book, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, which is excellent. And bin Laden was keen on having the Egyptians as the military strength of Al-Qaeda. Because if, if you have listened to any of my past broadcasts, the strength of Al-Qaeda came from the Egyptian-formed military and police officers that were recruited in groups like the Gamma Islamian Egyptian Islamic Jihad. In fact, some of the most formidable original members of Al-Qaeda that were the creation of the Al-Masada training camp in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion were Abu Ubaidah al-Banshiri, Abu Hafs al-Masri, also known as Muhammad Atev, Ali Muhammad, Remember, he was also an informant for the CIA and the FBI and was most certainly involved with the embassy bombings, which I'm going to talk about today. Now, unlike their adversaries in Egypt, Gamma Islamia was led by the imprisoned Omar Abdel Rahman, who was being held at FMC Rochester in Maryland at the time for his role in the Landmarks bombing plot. The Egyptian Islamic Jihad wanted to overthrow the Mubarak government and force the country to accept the Quran and the Sunnah as the leading instruments of the people. And that was the wish of the original founder of al-Jihad, Mohammed ibn al-Faraj, in which his document the near enemy and the far enemy talked about in order for the Islamic militancy to expand all over the world, they needed to overthrow the, the near enemy, which was the Arab secular governments, one by one. Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, and then have all those Islamist countries led by the Quran and the Sunnah or the Wahhabi ideology and to basically defeat the far enemy, which was Israel and the United States. But in the aftermath of the Luxor massacre, which took place on November 17th, 1997, at the Dira al which is the archaeological site and the tourist destination located across the Nile River from Luxor, Egypt, in which the Gamma Islamia slaughtered 62 tourists. And the Egyptian radical movements had come under intense investigation, and there was mass arrests led by Mubarak and the brutal um, SSI, the, secret, uh, the security services of Egypt, and put the main leadership of the Gamma Islamia out of operation and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. On top of that, like I said, you had the returnees from Albania, and of course, you had um, the arrest of many members of its security and recruiting detail. Now, 
During 1999, many of these fundamentalists located in broad areas of the world were detained and renditioned back to Egypt to stand trial for the number of offenses. And the trial was, was known as the Returnees from Albania, in which the court case is one of the principal sources of information about Sunni terrorist groups in the 1990s, specifically the Egyptian groups like Gamma Salamia and Egyptian Islamic Jihad. The Egyptian military courts prosecuted over a dozen members who faced the following charges. And these are very serious charges, such as the 1990 assassination of the chairman of the Egyptian parliament, Dr. Rifat al-Mahjoub, the 1993 assassination attempt of Interior Minister Abdul Halim Musa, which didn't kill Musa but killed four others, the 1993 assassination attempt against Prime Minister Atef Sadeki, in which a child was killed instead of Sadiqi. The 1994 assassination of Major General Rufia Kadiat, the Assistant Director of the SSSI in Cairo. The 1995 assassination of Egyptian attache Ahmed Al-Nazimi in Switzerland. The 1995 assassination attempt against President Mubarak in Addis Ababa, which is located in Ethiopia. And that story is remarkable in its own right. The 1995 bombing of the Egyptian embassies in Pakistan, which killed 15 people, in which an intended simultaneous mass murder of tourists at Khan al-Khalil did not materialize. And of course, like I said, the 1997 massacre of tourists at Luxor. When the trial ended in April of 99, 20 were acquitted, nine were sentenced to death, all in absentia, 11 to life imprisonment, and 67 were given sentences up to 25 years. Now, one of those found guilty in absentia was Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri. But Zawahiri was in Afghanistan under house protection by Muhammad Mullah Omar and the Taliban. So bin Laden's declaration, however, illuminated the imprisonment of Omar Abdel Rahman, in which, as you can see, bin Laden would repeat himself over between 1998 to 2001 that Omar Abdel Rahman was to be released. In fact, it was, there was an incident in which he told a, an Egyptian militant to crash his own private plane into the, the palace that housed Hosea Mubarak. This person went back and told the authorities. Now, Rahman penned a will which revealed the following, and I'm going to read the quote. Quote, Oh, brothers, if the Americans kill me, and they inevitably will, then perform my funeral and send my corpse to find my family. Do not forget any blood and do not squander it, but exact a most powerful and violent revenge, end quote. This would permeate because Rahman was a powerful Islamist leader. For as long as he is alive, his words have meaning and it reverberates throughout the jihadist world, specifically bin Laden. And on February 23rd, 1998, Al-Quds al-Arabi, 
which is an Arabic London newspaper, published a three-page statement written by members of what was called the World Islamic Front, which was led by Osama bin Laden. The statement was faxed to the publishing office and the contents pointed out the crimes of the United States in the mass arrests of the members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, including the imprisonment of Omar Abdel Rahman. But it's a long statement. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it was the following edit which brought the attention of the world and to the CIA because it was this statement which led the CIA to declare war against bin Laden. The first time an intelligence services declared war on its own against not a country, but a small organization that basically doesn't have a standing military. Quote, the ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do it. In order to liberate the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Holy Mosque in Mecca from the grip of the Israelis and the United States, and in order for their armies to move out of all the lands of Islam, defeated and unable to threaten any Muslim. This is in accordance with the words of Almighty Allah and fight the pagans all together as they fight you all together and fight them until there is no tumult or oppression and there prevail justice and faith in Allah, end quote. Now, when Al-Quds al-Arabi published the fatwa, like I said, the intelligence community took notice specifically the CIA. But it was led, it was the counterterrorism center led by Kofor Black and its DCI, George Tenet, that in June of 99, Tenet would name Black the director of the CIA's counterterrorism center. Because it was in this capacity that Black served as the CIA's director's special assistant for counterterrorism as well as the National Intelligence Officer for Counterterrorism. In return, Tenet would replace Michael Scheuer, who is the chief of the Bin Laden issue station, codenamed Alex Station, with Richard Bleed. The CIA had replaced the seasoned veterans with minted bureaucrats, analysts over awesome officers. And this would have a reverberating, devastating effect. None more so felt with the September 11, 2001 attacks. They would issue a war against bin Laden. But it didn't stop bin Laden from continuing to hold media interviews. Oh, this guy was all over the place. He wanted to basically send a message, which, by the way, in my studies of true crime and forensic psychology, that it's very rare when a criminal tells you of the motivations for an attack before the attack happens. It's always afterwards. With mass killers, lust killers, serial killers, they basically gave their motivations 
in a diary or to investigators after the crime has happened. With jihadism, that's not the case. Uh, specifically with bin Laden and al-Qaeda, they would tell you the motivations for their attacks before they even happened. Bin Laden holds his first and only press conference on May 26th, which was to help publicize the fatwa that he helped published several months before. Referring to the group that signed the fatwa, the World Islamic Front, he says, quote, by God's grace, we have formed with many other Islamic groups and organizations in the Islamic world, a front called the International Islamic Front to do jihad against the Crusaders and Jews and by God's grace, the men are going to have a successful result in killing Americans and getting rid of them. End quote. Stunning. Now, at the same time, you have to remember that the Taliban are fighting against the Northern Alliance led by Ahmed Shah Massoud, who are fighting for the control of Afghanistan. And what they didn't need at this time was American intervention. And with bin Laden inciting the media, American and international theater, this led to a huge concern that bin Laden was basically becoming an annoyance and later on a thorn in the side of the Taliban. But bin Laden wasn't done placating the West, however. And like I said, on May 28th, 1998, bin Laden had allowed for John Miller from ABC News to come to Southern Afghanistan and interview the man who declared war on the United States. And during that interview, we had the following audio regarding, well, some of the audio regarding bin Laden and John Miller which was announced on John Miller is the NYPD's deputy commissioner for intelligence and counterterrorism now. But in 1998, he was a reporter for ABC News, and he did an interview that would presage a generation of terror. Bin Laden comes across the field, and we step like three steps down into this hut that's kind of dug into the ground. Um, inside, it looks like a cave because the... The walls are un uneven. Miller interviewed al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden in Pakistan three years before the World Trade Center bombings. Not many outside the counterterrorism world even knew who bin Laden was back then, but he was suspected in the U.S. embassy attacks in Tanzania and soon the attacks on the USS Cole in Yemen. Miller spent 10 days traveling with al-Qaeda operatives in Pakistan and Afghanistan before one night... Bin Laden finally showed up. He sat down um, on this kind of bench covered in red fabric and put a blanket kind of over his knee. It was like sitting at story time with an old uncle. But there was a problem. 
a big problem. Bin Laden's handlers wouldn't allow anyone to translate the sheikh's answers. Miller didn't know what bin Laden was saying. And the al-Qaeda leader's monotonal, measured delivery was deceivingly calm. Miller had no way of knowing just how fiery it was. And at the end, I went back to the Arabic-speaking Iraqi fixer who had come with us on the trip. And I said, did he answer any of the questions? And he said, we need to get the tapes and we need to get out. He declared war on America. And he vowed three years before 9-11 that he would kill American civilians. We do not differentiate between those dressed in military uniforms and civilians. They are all targets. We predict a black day for America and the end of the United States. They will retreat from our land and collect the bodies of their sons back to America, if Allah wills. He said things that were a preview to history that had not yet occurred. And he said all these things with some confidence. An early version of the 9-11 plot was already in the planning stages when Miller interviewed bin Laden. He didn't tell Miller about that, but he did promise attacks against America. On May 28, 1998, that sounded like a lot of tall talk from a guy in a cave with a couple thousand people. On September 12... Now, bin Laden basically answered all the questions. And sitting behind him was a map of Africa. What was not said in the audio was that Miller had asked bin Laden why he wished to kill American soldiers when they were invited to Medina to begin with by the Saudi government. To which bin Laden retorted, quote, why should we believe that was the true reason American was there? Everywhere else they went where Muslims lived. All they did was kill children and occupy Muslim land. End quote. Now, when the topic of killing civilians came up, bin Laden certainly didn't miss a beat there. He said, quote, we do not differentiate between those dressed in military uniforms and civilians. They are all targets in this fatwa. American history does not distinguish between civilians and military, not even women or children. Can these bombs distinguish between infants and military? They are the ones who use bombs against Nagasaki. They are the ones who use bombs on Hiroshima. America does not have a religion that will prevent it from destroying all people, end quote. Now, the broadcast of the interview was met with intense interest by the intelligence community, of course. One of them being the FBI. And the FBI began learning more about this wealthy Saudi who prepared accordingly for war. Now, remember, the CIA was already familiar with bin Laden with a detailed recorded history while he was in Sudan in 1992. In fact, one uh, legendary case officer, Billy Waugh, had tracked bin Laden to his house in Khartoum and had asked previously whether they wanted to kill bin Laden there or to capture him and dish him. Neither was approved. Now, on top of that, you have the NSA, which began tapping the satellite phones he was using, as well as 
other al-Qaeda hierarchy. So between July and August of 1998, the NSA, remember, is monitoring phone calls between bin Laden in Afghanistan, Khalid al-Fawaz in Britain, who is an al-Qaeda courier in London. And remember, al-Fawaz, together with uh, um, uh, another member of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Ibrahim Idris, and Adel Adelbadi, who is the al-Qaeda's Europe-based propagandist, they're operating as bin Laden's de facto international media office in London, in which the NSA had listened for two years as bin Laden had called them over 200 times. Remember, you, you have to keep in, in remembering that the one agency that probably would have, probably would have intimate knowledge of terrorist operations, such as the embassy bombings and later 9-11, would be the NSA. Because what do you think al-Qaeda is talking about on these phones and their associates? Now, just to show you the, inept, the, the absolute malfeasance, and I use that word slightly, lightly, because I don't know whether it's malfeasance or intentional, but in November of 97, a member of the al-Qaeda unit in Nairobi, which is led by Wadi al-Hajj, this person, Mustafa Mahmoud Saeed Ahmad, had walked into a U.S. embassy and offered to share details concerning a plan to bomb the parking garage of the embassy in Nairobi. This man had intimate details of the cell. The CIA was regulated to, was given authority to investigate Saeed Ahmad's claims. But they were unable to confirm his claims, according to them. And in return, he was sent to other embassies in which he predicted similar situations, which turned out to be false. Ahmed told investigators that he and another man took photographs of the embassy of Nairobi on October 22nd, 1997. The case officer, who is not named, dismissed him as not credible. So he was handed back to the Kenyan government, who deported him back to Egypt. According to one anonymous intelligence official, he would later say that the Department of State would receive briefings about bin Laden's operatives before, during, and after the August 97 raid, 1997 raid of Wadi al-Hajj's residence. Wadi al-Hajj has a huge influence in Nairobi as he was given operational authority under bin Laden in Nairobi about an attack on U.S. embassies in, in Africa. Some of these reports referred to bin Laden in the first paragraph even. And like I said, Al-Hajj, who is one of bin Laden's most trusted financial managers, was later implicated by U.S. authorities for his role in money laundering for a terrorist organization designated by the United States in Sudan, Al-Qaeda. Now, going back to Ahmed's warnings about the embassies being a target, these aren't isolated incidents, however, because Prudence Bushnell who is the U.S. Kenyan ambassador between 1996 to 1999, 
she had sent memos to the State Department in December of 97 and May of 1998, warning about the needing of heightened security at the embassy in Nairobi. Bushnell was seen as a nuisance who was overly obsessed about needing security, according to some State Department officials. But before the U.S. Embassy bombings on August 7th, 98, it really wasn't hard to understand how few American officials have taken any notice or any seriousness of Osama bin Laden. Since there were no American debts attributed to him at this point. So I can understand how there could be malfeasance, how agencies like the FBI or the State Department would not give any validity about any terrorist threat coming from a wealthy Saudi donor. Now, at the same time, th there's a flip side of this coin. You have an agency like the NSA and the CIA who knew about this, the, the seriousness of this matter because Michael Scheuer, remember him? He was the chief of the Bin Laden issue station, Alex station. He would warn U.S. officials about to take Bin Laden serious. Now, sure, you had other problems like hoarding information between the CIA and other agencies. That certainly didn't help. He was also known as a, an antagonist of sorts. And the CIA certainly didn't like uh, his small little group of people in which they were nicknamed the Manson family because they were all women. People like Alfred Ann Bukowski, Michelle Ann Casey. Jennifer Matthews and others to hoard information even from the CIA relating to bin Laden. Now, the Clinton administration, however, wasn't taking bin Laden with the serious attention, as, like I said, opposed to people like Michael Scheuer or John O'Neill from the FBI. So, following this declaration, this fabula, the Clinton White House exerted pressure on the CIA to create a unit dedicating to investigating bin Laden. And so, in 1996, David Cohen, the CIA's deputy director, created the bin Laden issue station, codenamed Alec Station, because Michael Scheuer's son was named Alec. It was housed as a virtual station operating in a nondescript building in a Virginia suburb separate from the main Langley building, which housed the Central Intelligence Agency. And on May 22nd of 98, President Clinton creates the first new post called the National Coordinator for Counterterrorism. He would name Richard Clark for this job, and Clark soon becomes known as the Counterterrorism Czar. Even that name still sticks with him today. This position is outlined in a new presidential directive on counterterrorism. Presidential De Decision Directive 62, known as PDD-62, which also outlines goals of fighting terrorism and attempts to strengthen the interagency coordination of counterterrorism efforts between the groups like the CIA, the FBI, right? Now, bin Laden basically states that his war 
is now directed toward the military and civilians. That goes for Jews. Kill them wherever you find them. The CIA basically is trying to give real validity to bin Laden. And this would not go over well with many in the State Department who basically didn't want to hear this coming from a man who is known as an antagonist within his own agency. And this would basically be a warning from the CIA regarding bin Laden. Is it time to take a new look at Osama bin Laden? Tonight, the former head of the CIA unit responsible for tracking him down says bin Laden has been badly misunderstood and that it's hurting our ability to fight terrorism. News Channel 5's Evan Axelbank had a one-on-one -on -one interview with the former CIA agent tonight. Evan joins us tonight from Boca Raton. Evan. Kelly, Agent Michael Scheuer came here to Lynn University to promote his new book about Osama bin Laden. And the former agent says that bin Laden may never be caught and that it's time for the United States to come to grips with why it was attacked on September 11th. Signing autographs, writing books, and giving speeches are nothing like his last job. We had 10 chances to get him in 98 and 99, and we didn't get him. Since Michael Scheuer ran the CIA's bin Laden unit in the late 90s, he says Osama bin Laden has only grown more successful in promoting terrorism. In Scheuer's new biography of bin Laden that he was promoting at Lynn University today, he says Americans have been badly served by the notion that the terrorists hate us for our freedoms. It should beggar the imagination of every American to think that there's anyone out there who's going to blow themselves up because we drink beer. Rather, he says Americans need to look more closely at its presence in the Middle East and at its dependence on foreign oil. After studying bin Laden, he says Americans should expect nothing short of a long war. He expects it to be multi-generational, his grandchildren, his grandchildren's children. He carries the sobering message that there are legions of patient bin Laden fighters waiting in the wings. Scheuer expects bin Laden to die on his own terms. He is uh, living among people who regard him as a hero. He's living among tribes who, uh, once they accept a guest, will protect them with their lives. Scheuer expects another attack, sadly enough, and he says that the United States may not be far off from having body scanners everywhere and a national ID card. Now, bin Laden basically answered all the questions. And sitting behind him was a map of Africa. What was not said in the audio was that Miller had asked bin Laden why he wished to kill American soldiers when they were invited to Medina to begin with by the Saudi government. To which bin Laden retorted, quote, why should we believe that was the true reason American was there? Everywhere else they went where Muslims lived. All they did was kill children and occupy Muslim land. End quote. Now, when the topic of killing civilians came up, bin Laden certainly didn't miss a beat there. He said, quote, we do not differentiate between those dressed in military uniforms and civilians. They are all targets in this fatwa. 
American history does not distinguish between civilians and military, not even women or children. Can these bombs distinguish between infants and military? They are the ones who use bombs against Nagasaki. They are the ones who use bombs on Hiroshima. America does not have a religion that will prevent it from destroying all people, end quote. Now, the broadcast of the interview was met with intense interest by the intelligence community, of course. One of them being the FBI. And the FBI began learning more about this wealthy Saudi who prepared accordingly for war. Now, remember, the CIA was already familiar with bin Laden with a detailed recorded history while he was in Sudan in 1992. In fact, one uh, legendary case officer, Billy Waugh, had tracked bin Laden to his house in Khartoum and had asked previously whether they wanted to kill bin Laden there or to capture him and him. Neither was approved. Now, on top of that, you have the NSA, which began tapping the satellite phones he was using, as well as other al-Qaeda hierarchy. So between July and August of 1998, the NSA, remember, is monitoring phone calls between bin Laden in Afghanistan, Khalid al-Fawaz in Britain, who is an al-Qaeda courier in London. And remember, al-Fawaz, together with uh, um, uh, another member of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Ibrahim Idris, and Adel Adelbadi, who is the Al-Qaeda's Europe-based propagandist, they're operating as bin Laden's de facto international media office in London, in which the NSA had listened for two years as bin Laden had called them over 200 times. Remember, you, you have to keep in, in remembering that the one agency that probably would have, probably would have intimate knowledge of terrorist operations such as the embassy bombings and later 9-11 would be the NSA. Because what do you think Al-Qaeda is talking about on these phones and their associates? Now, just to show you the, inept, the, the absolute malfeasance, and I use that word slightly, lightly because I don't know whether it's malfeasance or intentional, but in November of 97, a member of the Al-Qaeda unit in Nairobi, which is led by Wadi al-Hajj. This person, Mustafa Mahmoud Saeed Ahmad, had walked into a U.S. embassy and offered to share details concerning a plan to bomb the parking garage of the embassy in Nairobi. This man had intimate details of the cell. The CIA was regulated to, was given authority to investigate Saeed Ahmad's claims. But they were unable to confirm his claims, according to them. And in return, he was sent to other embassies in which he predicted similar situations, which turned out to be false. Ahmed told investigators that he and another man took photographs of the embassy of Nairobi on October 22nd, 1997. The case officer, who is not named, dismissed him as not credible. So he was handed back to the Kenyan government 
who deported him back to Egypt. According to one anonymous intelligence official, he would later say that the Department of State would receive briefings about bin Laden's operatives before, during, and after the August 97 raid, 1997 raid of Wadi al-Hajj's residence. Wadi al-Hajj has a huge influence in Nairobi as he was given operational authority under bin Laden in Nairobi about an attack on U.S. embassies in, in Africa. Some of these reports referred to bin Laden in the first paragraph, even. And like I said, Al-Hajj, who is one of bin Laden's most trusted financial managers, was later implicated by U.S. authorities for his role in money laundering for a terrorist organization designated by the United States in Sudan, Al-Qaeda. Now, going back to Ahmed's warnings about the embassies being a target, these aren't isolated incidents, however, because Prudence Bushnell, who is the U.S. Kenyan ambassador between 1996 to 1999, she had sent memos to the State Department in December of 97 and May of 1998, warning about the needing of heightened security at the embassy in Nairobi. Bushnell was seen as a nuisance who was overly obsessed about needing security, according to some State Department officials. But before the U.S. Embassy bombings on August 7th, 98, it really wasn't hard to understand how few American officials have taken any notice or any seriousness of Osama bin Laden. Since there were no American debts attributed to him at this point. So I can understand how there could be malfeasance, how agencies like the FBI or the State Department would not give any validity about any terrorist threat coming from a wealthy Saudi donor. Now, at the same time, th there's a flip side of this coin. You have an agency like the NSA and the CIA who knew about this, the, the seriousness of this matter because Michael Scheuer, remember him? He was the chief of the Bin Laden issue station, Alex Station. He would warn U.S. officials about to take bin Laden serious. Now, sure, you had other problems like hoarding information between the CIA and other agencies. That certainly didn't help. He was also known as a, an antagonist of sorts. And the CIA certainly didn't like uh, his small little group of people in which they were nicknamed the Manson family because they were all women. People like Alfred Ann Bukowski, Michelle Ann Casey, Jennifer Matthews and others to hoard information even from the CIA relating to bin Laden. Now, the Clinton administration, however, wasn't taking bin Laden with the serious attention, as, like I said, opposed to people like Michael Scheuer or John O'Neill from the FBI. So following this declaration, this fabric, the Clinton White House exerted pressure on the CIA to create a unit dedicating to investigating bin Laden. And so, in 1996, David Cohen, the CIA's deputy director, 
created the Bin Laden Issue Station, codenamed Alex Station, because Michael Shoyer's son was named Alec. It was housed as a virtual station operating in a nondescript building in a Virginia suburb separate from the main Langley building, which housed the Central Intelligence Agency. And on May 22nd of 98, President Clinton creates the first new post called the National Coordinator for Counterterrorism. He would name Richard Clark for this job, and Clark soon becomes known as the Counterterrorism Czar. Even that name still sticks with him today. This position is outlined in a new presidential directive on counterterrorism. Presidential De Decision Directive 62, known as PDD-62, which also outlines goals of fighting terrorism and attempts to strengthen the interagency coordination of counterterrorism efforts between the groups like the CIA, the FBI, right? Now, Bin Laden basically states that his war is now directed toward the military and civilians. That goes for Jews. Kill them wherever you find them. The CIA basically is trying to give real validity to bin Laden. And this would not go over well with many in the State Department who basically didn't want to hear this coming from a man who is known as an antagonist within his own agency. And this would basically be a warning from the CIA regarding bin Laden. Is it time to take a new look at Osama bin Laden? Tonight, the former head of the CIA unit responsible for tracking him down says bin Laden has been badly misunderstood and that it's hurting our ability to fight terrorism. News Channel 5's Evan Axelbank had a one-on-one -on -one interview with the former CIA agent tonight. Evan joins us tonight from Boca Raton. Evan. Kelly agent Michael Scheuer came here to Lynn University to promote his new book about Osama bin Laden. And the former agent says that bin Laden may never be caught and that it's time for the United States to come to grips with why it was attacked on September 11th. Signing autographs, writing books, and giving speeches are nothing like his last job. We had 10 chances to get him in 98 and 99, and we didn't get him. Since Michael Scheuer ran the CIA's bin Laden unit in the late 90s, he says Osama bin Laden has only grown more successful in promoting terrorism. In Scheuer's new biography of bin Laden that he was promoting at Lynn University today, he says Americans have been badly served by the notion that the terrorists hate us for our freedoms. It should beggar the imagination of every American to think that there's anyone out there who's going to blow themselves up because we drink beer. Rather, he says Americans need to look more closely at its presence in the Middle East and at its dependence on foreign oil. After studying bin Laden, he says Americans should expect nothing short of a long war. He expects it to be multi-generational, his grandchildren, his grandchildren's children. 
He carries the sobering message that there are legions of patient bin Laden fighters waiting in the wings. Scheuer expects bin Laden to die on his own terms. He is uh, living among people who regard him as a hero. He's living among tribes who, uh, once they accept a guest, will protect them with their lives. Scheuer expects another attack, sadly enough, and he says that the United States may not be far off from having body scanners everywhere and a national ID card. Now, with the FBI, Bin Laden certainly wasn't a household name. And John O'Neill, who led the counterterrorism group in New York, he, however, continued to warn of growing threats of terrorism attributed to Bin Laden, saying that there are modern groups that were that weren't supported by governments and that there are terrorist cells operating within the United States, according to information given to him. Now, just last year, in 97, uh, before the embassy bombings, O'Neill moved uh, to New York City to be the special agent in charge of the FBI's National Security Division. At the same time, the Clinton White House, National Security Council, and the CIA both developed a plan to capture bin Laden in Afghanistan. And a CIA-owned aircraft, which was stationed in a nearby country, was ready to land on a remote landing strip long enough to pick him up because they wanted to rendition him back to the United States. However, there were problems with having to hold bin Laden too long in Afghanistan, which made the operation unlikely. And nobody took advantage of it. The plan, however, morphs into using a team of Afghan informants using the Northern Alliance to kidnap bin Laden from inside the heavily defended Tarnak Farms complex, which he was housed. Again, Michael Shoyer, who is the head of the bin Laden unit, called the plan the perfect operation. There was another CIA case officer, legendary case officer, Gary Schroen, who was the lead officer in the field in Afghanistan, he agreed and gives it about a 40% chance of succeeding. Now, of course, like always, there were higher-ups at the CIA who were skeptical of the plan. Now, this, is the, this was the war between the CIA with officers and analysts. They were skeptical because they worried that innocent civilians might die. Can you imagine that? <laughs> The CIA is worried about innocent civilians dying, right? The plan was then given to CIA Director George Tenet for approval, but on May 29, 1998, he rejects it without even showing it to President Clinton. As according to Tenet, he considered it too unlikely to succeed and decides that the Afghan allies are too unreliable. not too unreliable to go fight against bin Laden and al-Qaeda in response to the 2001 terrorist attacks, which, by the way, will come back to haunt them because they were unreliable because they basically allowed for bin Laden to escape to Pakistan, right? And he lives for another 10 years. Here's another problem. Nobody wanted to strike first. But bin Laden was already long planning to. As in the summer months of 1998 began, Bin Laden sends a fax to Afghanistan to Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad, who is a London-based Muslim imam who dubs himself the mouth, the eyes, and ears of Osama Bin Laden in London. Bakri 
publicly relates, um, I'm sorry, publicly um, releases what he calls Bin Laden's four specific objections and initiatives for a holy war against the United States. And part of the instruction reads, quote, bring down their airliners, prevent the safe passage of their ships, occupy their embassies, force the closure of their companies and banks, end quote. That's a pretty interesting quote, considering what we knew, what would happen three years later. So bin Laden, by the way, didn't just begin planning this attack in the United States and embassies. He began planning to attack U.S. embassies in East Africa as far back as 1994. Now, to give this in more context about how this began, in 1992, bin Laden sent Abu Ubaidah al-Banshiri, who is the al-Qaeda uh, military commander, he sent him to Kenya to run this cell. It was al-Banshiri's idea to stake claim in East Africa. And in Somalia, he saw the potential for another Afghanistan in which a tottering government could give way to the Islamists. Bin Laden had also began fermenting relationships with other jihadist groups, mainly in Middle East, East Africa, and Southeast Asia. So Shoyer, Michael Shoyer, wrote that Africa had remained a high-interest locale for bin Laden since 1994 and the withdrawal of the United Nations and the U.S. forces from Somalia. In response to the U.S. intervention in Somalia, Abu Ubaidah was in charge of relations with other Somalia rebels. And Michael Shoya also stated that it was bin Laden who sent 250 al-Qaeda fighters to Somalia to help with Mohammed Farah al-Did against the Americans by training the Somalians. By the way, there were rocket-propelled grenade launchers and Stinger missiles. And where did those come from? Remember Operation Cyclone, in which, under the Reagan administration, they provided Stinger missiles, which turned the tide of the war against the Soviets. Those Stinger missiles and rocket propulsion aid launchers went to Islamist groups, Arab fundamentalists, also known as Arab Afghans. And who would have knew? Who knew that billions of dollars of weapons aid would come back to haunt the United States? We're seeing that in Ukraine. To find out who our enemies are, find out who we in, to find out who our enemies are ten years from now. All you have to do is look at who we're funding today. Now, like I said, a key player in the East African cell was Wadi El Hajj. He was one of the operatives sent from Bin Laden's base in Khartoum to Nairobi. Now, way back in 1986, El Hajj went to work for the Bin Laden Services Bureau, known as the Maktab al-Kidma. And Bin Laden offered al-Hajj to live in Khartoum to work as a personal secretary of his. So in July of 1994, Wadi al-Hajj went to Nairobi to, to replace Khalid al-Fawaz, who was running a, 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 an Islamic charity called Mercy International. Fawaz moved to London to help establish the Advice and Reformations Committee to which he served as a conduit 
for bin Laden's message to the world. And one of his responsibilities for was was to provide satellite telephones, like I said before, the NSA had tapped, and other sophisticated communications gear so that bin Laden could stay in touch with his operations and, oper and operatives worldwide that the, the NSA had monitored. Bin Laden also openly criticized the Saudi kingdom to begin reformation and to begin publishing communiques lambasting all aspects of Saudi rule in which he said was a sellout to U.S. interests. He wasn't wrong. And because of this, in March of 94, Bin Laden was stripped of his Saudi citizenship, which left him stateless, In basically. He was a man without a state. So he moved from country to country. Now, to help him on the way was uh, Ali Muhammad. Muhammad, who had been involved with the Egyptian Islamic Jihad in Cairo. Years later, Muhammad takes residency in Santa Clara, California in 1987, and in the U.S. Army and manages to get stationed at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and school at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, until 1989. However, there's a nefarious history regarding Ali Muhammad because he was a double agent starting in 1977 when he offered to begin spying on Islamic centers in Cairo, Egypt for the CIA. <laughs> While inside the U.S., he also offers his services to inform for the FBI. All the while being in constant contact with Osama bin Laden and Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri. And Muhammad acted as a personal bodyguard and liaison for al-Zawahiri while he was collecting donations for the Arab and Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan in 1987. And al-Zawahiri entrusted Muhammad to find sensitive targets to attack in East Africa on behalf of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. All this with Muhammad training along Abu Abid al-Benshiri at the Arab Mujahideen camps in Khartoum. But there was a setback. In 1996, Al Abu Abid al-Benshiri is killed when the ferry he was on sunk and he drowned in Lake Victoria. Abu Muhammad al-Masri, also known as Muhammad Ataf, replaces him as head of the East African cell and also becomes the Al-Qaeda media, uh, Al-Qaeda military commander. Between July of 96 and September of 97, the CIA begins tapping the phone of Wadi al-Hajj's residence in Khartoum, and they caught several exchanges between him and bin Laden. It's amazing what these intelligence services collect. I wonder if anyone can basically file a FOIA request to find out what's on these transcripts? Or are they classified? On August 27th of 97, FBI Special Agent Dan Coleman and two CIA officers, they serve a search warrant for El Hodge's residence. And what did they collect? Well, they got his laptop, they got his address book, notebooks, micro cassettes, and after realizing Wadi al-Hajj is found out, 
What does he do? He returns to the United States. He goes to Arlington, Texas, because he has a family there. Now, there are a couple of counts that say he sold all of his possessions to fund this trip in September of 97 because he has nothing left. The authorities have all his possessions. And in now this is according to some sources, and these are reputable sources, people like Lawrence Wright, Tito Lance. In July of 98, Taliban officials allegedly meet with the Saudi intelligence director, Prince Turki al-Faisal, to continue talks concerning the Taliban's ouster of bin Laden from Afghanistan. Because like I said before, he becomes a thorn in their side at this point. Now, the reports on the location of this meeting and the deal under discussion differ. According to some reports, including documents exposed in the later lawsuit, this meeting takes place in Kandahar. Those present at this meeting were Prince Turki al-Faisal, the Taliban leadership of Afghanistan and Pakistan, senior officers from the Pakistan ISI, and Osama bin Laden himself. According to those same reports, Saudi Arabia agrees to give bin Laden and Pakistan several hundred millions of dollars. And in return, bin Laden promises no attacks against Saudi Arabia. The Saudis also agree to ensure that requests for extradition of al-Qaeda members will be blocked and promise to block demands by other countries to close down bin Laden's Afghan training camps. There's a lot of validity to this. Because Saudi Arabia had already previously given money to the Taliban and bribed money to bin Laden. But this ups the ante. So there's a lot of validity to this. They also warned bin Laden of not bringing negative attention to Afghanistan. Because like I said before, the Taliban had their own problems fighting against the Northern Lights for control of Afghanistan. However, on August 5th, 1998, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which joined forces with al-Qaeda, issued a statement threatening to retaliate against the United States for its involvement rounding up members of the Islamic Jihad cell in Albania. Now, it's believed that Dr. Ayman al-Zawari wrote the statement in which I highlight the following, quote, we wish to inform the Americans of preparations for a response, which we hope they read with care, because we shall write it with the help of God in the language they understand, end quote. The Taliban basically were getting very weary of bin Laden. And they would hold meetings in which, with, with Saudi intelligence later on, about handing over bin Laden to the Saudis, but they feared that he would be handed over to the Americans. 
which led to the Taliban conveying a meeting with U.S. officials. Bin Laden existed in Afghanistan exactly 17 years before our government existed. We inherited him. And the fact is that such people were instigated by the CIA and by the government of America in that time to go and fight the Soviets. And such people were called the heroes of independence. And all of a sudden, they have changed now to, to terrorists. We don't say that we are defending terrorism, but we need to know whether they are really terrorists or not. We, we were called the puppets of America until 1998. So we don't know as to what, what to do now. We have been given no counter proposals. And now the perception in Afghanistan is that maybe the United States is always looking for a boogeyman. Because so many people have their jobs following bin Laden now. If bin Laden is not there, they will lose jobs. On, you know, August 7th, 1990, marks the exact date the U.S. military arrived in Saudi Arabia to take part in defending the country from Iraq, which invaded Kuwait. But on this date, a willing martyr awaits his final act. However, he faces a pressing conundrum. The distinction between suicide and martyrdom is no trivial issue in the thinking of an Al-Qaeda jihadi. Bin Laden's Al-Qaeda group went to great lengths to ensure that there had to be religious authority and guidance to anyone in the organization in which they had to swear bayat, loyalty, to the emir, Bin Laden before even God. This was to maintain moral authority over his subjects in the group who had to follow through with his murderous invocations, which, keep in mind, were permissible even though the Quran forbade it. This led to a very um, pressing conundrum for any jihadi. Because committing a sin in furtherance of a righteous cause is theologically untenable. Now, Bin Laden, shrewd as he was, twisted the sin to an act of martyrdom for the sake of Islam. As well as labeling the victims as sacrifices for the greater good if they were Muslim only. If they were not... They were advocates for the Crusaders and the uh, Yahud, Jew. Muhammad Rashid Daoud al-Ohali. He was 21 years old when he embarked to die as a martyr for bin Laden. And so on August 7, 1998, he was to die for the sake of bin Laden, not for Islam. Al-Ohali trained at the Chaldean training camp in the eastern Patkia province near Tora Bora in 1996. He was in the passenger seat of a cream-colored Toyota Dyna truck on this day, August 7, 1998. In the back of a truck was a, was a covered cargo bay-packed 
with cylinders of TNT, aluminum nitrate, and aluminum powder. The driver was a fellow Saudi, Muhammad Ali al-Harazi. He's also known as Azam. Al-Ohali's role was to force the guards at the gate of the American embassy in Nairobi to allow Azam to drive the truck into a garage. But there was a security guard there named Benson Okulu Bauka. He approaches the vehicle. Al Ohali leapt out of the truck. Now he throws a stun grenade at the embassy guards and he runs away from the vehicle. Azam saw he could drive no further. And the security guards locked the garage by having the security gate closed. Seeing that Al Ohali had run away and that he could go no further, Azam detonated his device, which caused a tremendous blast so hard that Al Ohali fell flat on his stomach from the shockwave, which sent shredded debris flying in all directions, which in turn also shredded Al Ohali's shirt and he suffered minor burns and injuries to his back. However, Al Ohali was supposed to die in the explosion. Because he didn't, he didn't have any plans after this. So he ends up going to Nairobi's MP Shah Hospital for his wounds. But the Nairobi blast was devastating, killing 213 people and injuring an estimated 4,000. The explosion damaged the embassy building and collapsed the neighboring Ufundi building where most of the victims were killed, mainly students and staff of a secretarial college which was housed there. Prudence Bushnell, who I spoke about before, was at the top floor of the cooperative bank building when she heard the explosion, which knocked her straight off her feet, in which she would later talk about. I was the U.S. ambassador at the time. I had um, been serving in Nairobi for two years, working with a fabulous team of 17 different U.S. government agencies and focusing on teamwork. And I want to emphasize that because we could not have survived as we did had we not been working together for two years. Um, I had been sending cables back to the Department of State, advising the Department of the security vulnerabilities, particularly the location in which we were situated. And the response that I received was, there's no money, you're not on the list, um, you won't be on the list, and besides, we deem the terrorist threat level to be medium. So, so sorry, we'll send a team to um, do this and that in your location. And three months after I wrote a letter to the Secretary of State about my concerns, because as ambassador, like all ambassadors, I had a machine-signed letter from the President of the United States 
telling me that I was responsible for the security of American citizens, not just U.S. government people, but American citizens. I think ambassadors are the only Senate-confirmed employees of the U.S. government to actually get a job description. That job description said, you need to keep people safe. Because I could not get my bureaucratic colleagues to help, I wrote to the secretary. Three months later, we were blown up by Al-Qaeda. This was Al-Qaeda's first attack on the United States, simultaneous to an attack on our embassy in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. It was a beautiful Friday morning, mid-morning. It was the day of the week when we had that event everybody looks forward to, which is the weekly staff meeting which was usually held in my office, but I had finally gotten a meeting scheduled with the Minister of Commerce to talk with him about the visit of then Secretary of Commerce Daly to Kenya. And so I was not present at the staff meeting. Um, the minister's office was in a high-rise building across from the small parking lot which the U.S. Embassy shared with the members, some of the members of this high-ride building. Um, I was on the 21st floor. We had gone through the photo op that usually begins ministerial kinds of meetings. The press had just left. We had gotten our requisite cup of tea. I was sitting next to the minister on a couch and we heard a boom that sounded to me like a construction boom. And I asked, is there construction going on? And he, the minister, as well as many of the other people in the room, got up and started walking to the window. I don't know what instinct kept me from getting up, um, but I was the last one up and had taken a few steps when this boom, uh, huge percussion came and threw me back. I'm a shadowy, some shadowy figures um, went by. I thought simultaneously, I'm going to die. And it was, you know, endorphin induced sort of dreaming, ha, huh, so this is what it's like. At the same time, every cell in my body was in panic mode because I was on the 21st floor. I was waiting for the building to um, collapse and was waiting, uh, uh, literally um, tensing myself for the fall. Um, then I came to, one of my colleagues came rushing back to the room and said, Ambassador, we have to get out of here. And we began walking down 21 endless flights of stairs, a huge, long parade of silent and bleeding people. I was focused on keeping my feet on the stairs. I was concerned. Um, people were quiet. As we went further down the stairs, more people joined us. Some um, shouted Karibu, which is Kiswahili for welcome, as we were joined. Somebody started singing a hymn. I remember we passed 
the body of either a deceased or unconscious woman very carefully. And we got to a, um, a point when suddenly the slow parade stopped and uh, we heard voices yelling, hurry, hurry, fire! And the um, smoke came up and I thought, I'm going to die. But at least I'll be asphyxiated. I'm not going to burn to death. And in the meantime, the mantra, I mean, I was just thinking, uh, I just need to get out. I need to get to the embassy. I'll be okay. We'll have a medical unit. We, we did have a medical unit in the embassy. My colleague and I exited the building. And he said, Ambassador, there's press, because remember we had just finished the photo op and many members of the media had come out of the building just minutes, maybe even seconds before um, the bomb, the truck bomb was detonated. He said, um, Ambassador, uh, put your head down, there's press, and he literally put my head down. I later asked him, how in the world did you think of that? And he said, I think I saw it in a movie. At any rate, I was was walking with my head down and saw shards of glass and twisted uh, twisted steel and then came upon the burned corpse of what used to be a human being and my eyes came up and there was the embassy without um, a rear wall flames of cars um, it was it was truly a hell. It was truly a hell, and the seven-story office building next to the embassy had totally collapsed. And it was real clear to me that there was not going to be anyone to take care of me, and I had better get in gear. And that's what I did. And our team of people turned from victims to first responders because we were an embassy. Um, not only that, there was not, no 911 in Nairobi at the time. So the people at the embassy came out of the embassy, regrouped, turned around, went back in. What was at that time a, a death trap because a fire had broken out on our generator. The generator had turned on and we had electrical wires that were um, just strewn about and streaming as the water main burst and the water was coming up in the basement and our colleagues chose to go back in and bring out the people they could find, stay with the people who were wounded and ultimately bring out the body parts of their friends and colleagues. And then we started to piece ourselves back together again. And we did it as a community of Americans. Americans were given the option to leave. Very few chose. We chose to stay. Our Kenyan colleagues had no choice. And together we accomplished um, what I look back now as extraordinary. And the lesson I learned is that if you can create community, then you can face um, almost anything, even if it is extraordinarily, extraordinarily
painful. And it comes back to why I am a diplomat. It is because diplomacy is all about creating community internationally. Bin Laden later offered the explanation that it had been Al-Ohali's intention to leap out and shoot the guards to clear a path for the truck, but that he had left his pistol in the back of the truck and subsequently ran off. And like Prudence Bushnell stated in that audio, people started to come out of nearby buildings, which suffered immense damages to witness the ensuing horror of twisted bone, flayed flesh, and dismembered bodies. Just 10 minutes later, another truck explosion, this time in the southeast of the city at the U.S. Embassy in Dar es Salaam in Kenya, in which an Atlas truck attacked the building located at 36 Laban Road, which was driven by Hamdan Khalif Allah Awad, also known as Ahmed the German, due to his blonde hair and former camp trainer who had arrived in the country only a few days earlier. And in the blast, 11 were killed and 75 were wounded in the attack. The acting U.S. Ambassador John Lang was in his top floor office holding a meeting when the explosion happened. And he said, quote, Every room in the building was devastated. I was sitting with my back to the outside wall when the glass blew in over my head. It what seemed like slow motion. Thankfully, no one in our meeting was seriously injured, end quote. In response to the bombings, the FBI at the New York field office arrived in what, is, what was the largest deployment in its history. Pat DeMauro would later say, quote, it was the finest investigation I was ever involved in. The reason it's important for the story to be told is that the last Africa investigation pulled together massive amounts of intelligence and can be credited with opening eyes around the world to which the extent of the threat posed by Al-Qaeda, end quote. Al-Ohali, who, like I said, arrived at the main hospital where the Kenyan doctors were very suspicious of Ohali's injuries. But they also noted that he was calling a phone outside the hospital. They also noted that the injuries to him noted that it seemed that he was running away from the scene. So the FBI began investigating both the Kenyan Nairobi bombings with Pat DeMuro in Nairobi and Pat Kelly in Kenya, leading the way for the FBI. The most crucial pieces of evidence for which every recovery specialist scowled the crime scene in Nairobi were any fragments that could identify the composition of the explosive device or the delivery vehicles in which, eight days into the investigation in Nairobi, Ken Piernick saw something that would catch his eye. 
in which he cleaned this part of the truck. Just like in 1993, it was the VIN number belonging to a 1987 Nissan Atlas. In 1993, the FBI would find the VIN number of the Ryder truck, which was used to house the bomb that was used in the World Trade Center bombing. Steve Bongart and Steve Gowden were the first to interview Al O'Halley on August 22nd, 1998, in which Al O'Halley broke down and said he would only cooperate if he were tried in the United States because he considered them the enemy. Al O'Halley told Gowden that he met bin Laden several times. Al-Ohali told Gowden that he was told by Khalid Khalid in Pakistan that he was chosen for a martyrdom mission in which Al-Ohali even filmed a farewell martyrdom video in which he claimed responsibility for the attack on behalf of the Liberation Army of the Islamic Sanctuaries, a group that doesn't exist. Just like 1993, the Liberation Army. He arrived in Nairobi on August 2nd, according to him, and O'Halley was given a paper and pen to write down the number he was to call, in which he was seen calling outside the hospital. Surprisingly, he complied because the man that interviewed uh, Al Ohali later was John Antisev. Antisev knew Ohali. He also knew about jihadist ideology. Al Ohali respected him. And he gave him the number. The number was 967 1 200578. It belonged to a house in Yemen in which. The man, the owner of the house, was Ahmed al-Hada. There was another surprise, not afforded to the FBI at the time. This number was already known to the NSA and the CIA because it had called a number of times to Bin Laden's satellite phone between the years 1992 to 1996. And they also knew it belonged to a Yemeni Ahmed al-Hada. They also knew it received calls from Nairobi before the attacks, but of course, didn't know why until later, allegedly. But it also proved that al-Ohali's revelation confirmed al-Qaeda was indeed behind the attacks. And Lawrence Wright would later say in The New Yorker, quote, this Yemen number would prove to be the most significant piece of information the FBI would ever discover, allowing investigators to map the links of the Al-Qaeda network all across the globe, end quote. But that was already known to the NSA and the CIA. Also, al Ohali also told investigators that while staying at a guest house in Yemen, he overheard a conversation from Abdul Rahmid al-Nashiri discussing a plan to attack U.S. ships 
in aid in Yemen with missiles. Also staying at the guest house was another individual, as he identified as Khalad, Taufik Binatash. He, too, was involved with the planning of the U.S. Embassy attacks. But on August 26, 1998, Mohammed Daoud al-Ohali was rendered to the United States. In all, 22 suspects, including bin Laden, were indicted for nearly 300 crimes by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, which was given jurisdiction over the case. In the year 2000, Muhammad Rashid Daoud al-Ohali, Wadi al-Hajj, and Muhammad Sadiq Odeh and K.K. Muhammad were brought before the federal court, the first al-Qaeda terrorists to be tried for an attack on the United States. Mary Jo White, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, who later prosecuted the four defendants, would state, quote, we got to put the organization on trial alongside the individuals. We got to publicly lay out the hierarchy of al-Qaeda. The entire blueprint for our military going after its leadership in Afghanistan came out of this investigation, end quote. Incidentally enough, Mohammed Daoud al-Ohali stands alone as the only suicide bomber in Islamist history to successfully survive a martyrdom operation. Bin Laden said the embassies were targeted because of the U.S. invasion of Somalia, but it was also a plot to lure the Americans into Afghanistan. And Clinton did not oblige. In this, it was partially successful by furthering radicalizing the Taliban against the United States and giving bin Laden safe residency there when the Clinton administration authorized drone strikes in response to the attacks in Afghanistan, angering Mullah Omar. Bin Laden had struck back and would release a public statement to U.S. President Bill Clinton in which he would say, quote, the battle has not yet started. We will reply to Clinton in deeds, end quote. I'm Adam Fitzgerald, host of The Dark and Dower. Have a good night.